This is the time that, um, leading up to Purim and Pesach, it's a time of establishing the most fundamental of all concepts in Torah and probably in life. That's the concept of faith, of emuna, what we call emuna. Emuna, uh, the concept of Purim being the Jewish perception of reality in the darkness when there was no direct evidence of of a higher presence Pesach, the time when we perceived the higher world directly but that the tension between those Shisham, next week we'll speak about Puri maybe try and look at a little bit of the depth behind it but before we get there let's try to examine the the concept of of faith itself one of the most difficult areas, <coughs> much more than we can deal with in one, one discussion, of course. <coughs> but let's see if we can point out at least the pathway that leads towards a genuine or a more mature understanding of faith than we are used to dealing with in a secular and non-Jewish environment. The two difficulties with the subject are, first of all, that it's intrinsically the most difficult subject that there is to deal with because it lives in the higher world. It's not living in the world of explicit logic. It has its own logic, which is just as rigorous, but it needs tools that are higher. It's a shame as we go through the <coughs> discussion, perhaps a few weeks' time, we may be able to discuss those spiritual tools themselves but the subject is difficult because intrinsically it's a very difficult subject and secondly and no less important it's a very difficult subject because we live in a western technical non-spiritual environment which is teaching exactly the opposite and exactly the wrong attitude and perception of the subject and therefore we have to unlearn the meaning of the words that we've had, <coughs> that we've absorbed, we have to unlearn the concepts. It's not easy. <coughs> Let's start with asking a few questions. The most obvious question about faith is that. If you translate the word that we use, which is emona, if you translate it as faith, then the problem that you immediately faced with is that that word in English implies something that cannot be known. Faith in English means blind faith, often call it blind faith. It goes together with words like belief. It's a belief, it's a whole religious experience and the whole concept of relating to that which is higher than then the tangible world, it's something that you believe. Now the problem is that the word belief applies only to something that you cannot know. If you know something, you don't believe it, you know it. You believe only that which you don't know, that's why you believe it. If there's something on the other side of that wall that I cannot see, <coughs> I need to believe that it's there. <coughs> I either believe or I don't believe. But the, the appropriate term is belief. If, however, it's on this side and I can see it, 
And it's inappropriate to say that I believe that it's there. I don't believe that you're in front of me. The appropriate word is knowledge. And therefore, if we're going to apply this idea, this concept of Imuna, <coughs> of belief, if we're going to apply that to a knowledge of the higher world, to knowledge of the divine, of Hashem, and we're going to say that it's that which the word belief and faith, those words are correctly used, in that context we use those words, we say that it's something that cannot be known. That leads to tremendous problems. If you say that Hashem's existence, let's put it bluntly, and that's the subject, that's the core subject of our faith, of Emona, is knowledge of His existence. It's a legitimate question, and even in the deepest and most religious sources, the question of the knowledge or the proofs of His existence is dealt with. Many of the Jewish philosophers throughout the ages, particularly 500, 600 years ago, and before that, the time of the Rambam, that was a classic age of, of this bringing to the fore this, the philosophical and rational investigations into this question. It's a legitimate question. If you're going to say that it's something that cannot be known, but must be believed, then it becomes silly. It becomes silly. If you can't ever know the thing that you believe, then for what reason should you believe it? <coughs> if you want to put it perhaps in a bit more extreme, a bit more extreme fashion, why should you believe the particular belief that you believe? Why is it any more rational or meaningful or logical or, 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 or compelling than believing something else? <coughs> Not too many enlightened faces. If you've ever had the experience of discussing these matters with a missionary, not a recommended activity. <laughs> but if you are ever put in that situation, one of the discussion, one of the themes of the discussion often is that they pride themselves on the lack of logic of certain aspects of their system. Example, happened to be some place not long ago when I was imprisoned in the company of an individual <laughs> who, <laughs> I mean, short of opening the door at 60 miles an hour, <coughs> I was stuck. <coughs> he, pro he proceeded to try to show me <coughs> that the person that he re regards as the Messiah must have been the Messiah. And the reason, one of the major reasons he advanced is that he, fit, he fitted the criteria that are brought down in our sources as being the criteria for being the Messiah. One of the criteria, of course, is that he should be from the house of David. Should be from the house of David from the house of Judah, Yehuda, <coughs> descended to the house of David. And of course we know that your Jewish identity goes through your mother, but, your, but the tribe, in other words, which the house or the, the tribal affiliation, which Shevet you belong to, that goes to the father. And therefore since his father, whom he quoted by name, was a descendant according to their tradition of the house of David, therefore that's one piece of evidence that in fact he he had the required criteria. So I said to him, but I thought according to your tradition, his father had nothing in fact to do with his <coughs> production. <laughs> Which means that, again, if you're going to say that his father, or the man they call his father, had nothing to do with his birth, which is a 
axiom in their teaching, then what's the relevance of the fact that he was born of the house of David? So it says to me, you see how great our faith is? That even though it's not logical, we believe it. <laughs> now that's not facetious. That's not facetious. That's serious. That's serious. If faith means that which must be believed, if faith means that which must be believed but cannot be known, then on the contrary, then the less logical it is, perhaps the better it is. Perhaps it demands a greater act of faith. If they interpret faith as being that which cannot be known, you must relate to it even though you cannot know it. Then the more of a challenge it is to the intellect, perhaps the greater the act of faith it could be. But then it becomes completely arbitrary. Then if you can believe anything that's less logical or slightly more logical or completely illogical, it makes no difference. How would you ever engage in a discussion with somebody who believes something other than you do? What are you going to do? Try and show that person that yours is more logical. But at the end of the day, it's not logical. At the end of the day, it cannot be proven. <coughs> so if it can't be proved, what's the difference if it's more logical? Proof has to be 100%. There's not proof that's 99%. 99% is not proof. It's a, it's a probability. It's a likely. It's not a proof. And therefore, what you believe becomes completely arbitrary. If it cannot be known intrinsically, if there's no pathway by which you can come to know this, <coughs> then it's completely arbitrary. On the other hand, and not only that, but it's foolish. <coughs> if it cannot be known, there's something very awkward in committing yourself to something that has no point of fixity, that has no point of reference, that, 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 that you sort of tell yourself you relate to. Why? Why? Because other people believe it. <coughs> most of what people do on earth, and most of what people believe is wrong. Most of what most people do a lot of the time, and most of what most people think most of the time is wrong. <coughs> That's the history of Judaism, that we've always, always been the minority. We're not impressed by majorities. <coughs> On the contrary, because the majority believe it's a good reason not to. We have a law of majorities, but it's, you have to know where it applies. When Renabionison Ibishitz was a young boy, he was a young, brilliant, brilliant sage of his day, but when he was a small boy, it's well known that he used to, he was engaged in discussion with a priest who lived in his town. We used to always try to convince this little Jewish boy about Christianity. And it's well known that he devised many approaches to try to convince this little boy. He was fascinated by this little Jewish child. <coughs> he had such clever answers. And he knew so much. And on one occasion he came to this, Rebbe he must have been seven or eight at the time. He said to him, I'll show you that you should become a Christian according to your own law. According to your own Bible, according to the Torah, you should become a Christian. Why? Because it says in your Bible, Akhrei Rabim you should follow the majority. It says in the Torah, it says in the book that you believe in, that's a law of yours, that you should follow the majority. And there's no question that we're in the majority. You Jews are a tiny handful, and we're a massive majority. And therefore, according to your own principles, you should follow us. The Leonison said to him, the law of majority only applies in the case of doubt. <laughs> no amount of majority is going to convince us when you're wrong the majority believes that turn to his five that's going to impress us and therefore and therefore if knowledge is something if, if, if this thing that we call emuna is something that has no knowledge it's not something that interests us Torah is not a system of, of blind commitment to something that has no, no 
frame of reference, no point of fixity, that's not what it's about. <laughs> On the other hand, if you say that this thing can be known, if you'll say that knowledge of a higher reality can be known in the formal sense, then what's faith? What's faith? That's an inappropriate word. Why do we use the word imuna? You don't have to believe in something that you can know. So the expression should be that this is something that can be known, and perhaps when you're junior, you don't know it yet, but you're moving towards the knowledge as you grow and you, you study, you learn more Torah, you investigate. Eventually you'll get to know it. <laughs> the concern here is not whether a person does or doesn't know it. The concern is, is it knowable? That's the question. Whether a junior or somebody who hasn't done enough work on this, in, in the area does or does, does not yet know it, <laughs> That's a technical problem. There are, many, there are many mysteries and wisdoms on earth that you only know intrinsically after a lot of work. But the point is they're knowable. Whether you personally will ever get to know it's a, it's a question. But So is this thing knowable or not? Is Hashem's existence knowable in principle or is it not knowable? If it's knowable, then why do we call it faith? Then the, surely the name of this concept should be a knowledge, a deeper knowledge. And we approach that knowledge. That's our problem. <coughs> also, you'll see that the word emunah, which is translated as faith, is a completely non-Jewish translation. You'll see that the verses that in the Torah that use this, this word can never be translated that way. Classic example, it says that when Moshe Rabbeinu was up on the mountain and the Jewish people were battling Amalek, that nation that came to in a suicidal bit to attack us, try to destroy us, which in fact is what Purim is all about, it says that his hands were held aloft, and it says, Vahayu yadav emunah at Hashemesh. His hands were emunah until the sun went down. Whatever that means, it doesn't mean belief. His hands didn't believe anything. You sometimes find the word emunah used in Torah in a situation where the only possible context is knowledge. For example, it says that Hashem was speaking to Abraham. Hashem was speaking to Abraham explicitly, and it says, Vahayamin Bashem, and he believed, well, the English translation is, and he believed in God. It says, God was speaking to him. It was a prophetic revelation. And during that conversation it says, and he believed in Hashem, if you translate it that way, and Hashem considered it a great, a great merit on his part. What do you mean he believed? He was talking to him face to face. There's nothing, no clearer revelation than prophecy. I speak to you face to face, it would be ridiculous for you to say that you believe that I'm here. Surely it cannot be there. So we have to do some rethinking of this concept. Let's try and approach this from a formal Jewish perspective and see if we can answer these questions, see if we can develop together a much more <coughs> satisfying and authentic approach to this question of faith or whatever, what, whichever word you will choose to use. First of all, let's, let's proceed in sequence, the number of elements that we have to slot in here. <coughs> you know, one of the things we'll have to try to understand is a complicated subject very complicated subject, we'll have to develop it perhaps much more length another time, is that we have a principle that in every area of falsehood there is some truth. In fact, it's also one of the messages of Purim, <coughs> is that in every area of falsehood there is a truth. And it's that element, that grain of truth, whatever its proportion, <coughs> that keeps that falsehood in existence. In the silliest of, <coughs> of untrue things that, that have any ongoing existence in, in, in the history of the world, there's always a grain, at least, and sometimes much more, in some of the most dangerous situations, the majority is true. There's only subtleties that are not, but it's enough to make the whole thing untrue, of course. But whatever the proportion is, there's always at least an ingredient, or at least a small proportion, that is in fact true. 
And that is, that is what has, has nurtured those who hold those beliefs. That's what maintains them in the world throughout history. And therefore we're forced to say that if people translate, right, yeah, to hear this sensitively, if people translate emunah <coughs> as faith or belief, meaning blind and unknowable, there must be a truth in it. Now that's really going to complicate the picture. Because if we're going to say that, that it's either knowable or not, well how are we going to say, and I'm going to try and show you that it is knowable, and yet we'll also understand that there's some unknowable element in it, exactly where does that fit? What is that grain of truth here? And there's also a grain of truth in the understanding that the greatness of a person of faith is that there is a commitment in a place where there's something that's unknowable. But then that reopens our whole question. <laughs> Let's try to work through this step by step and see, see where it takes us. Let's do it in stage. <coughs> First of all, what, what is Torah teaching? What does the Torah say? What do our sources say? about the question of whether something that's higher than this world can be known. What's our approach to that? Do we say it can be known or it cannot be known? Is it intrinsically unknowable, it always transcends finite knowledge, and therefore it's always this blind thing, or can it be known? There's a very clear answer to that from a Jewish perspective. There's not a shadow of doubt about this. There's no dissension about this. It is absolutely clearly knowable, and in fact it should be known, and it's only the lowliness of this generation, particularly this generation, which has lost its roots and lost its attachment to its to the chain of its historical connections that in fact has such tremendous doubts about this. It's why we doubt that we're Jewish in this generation. Jews in this generation, young Jews of this generation do not have an intrinsic sense of their own Jewishness. It's a very, very doubtful issue that I'm different as a Jew in any way. I'm not talking about better or worse, that's irrelevant. But the fact that I'm different somehow, that being Jewish is a unique identity, is a very, very doubtful point in the minds of the youth of this generation. It fits into the context of a generation that's not sure that it's human. This generation of the world's history has serious doubts about whether it's human. <coughs> when the world of people is not sure that they're human as opposed to animal, then a natural outcome of that is that the world of Jews do not know whether they're Jewish or human. Jewish in addition to being human. <laughs> it becomes an irrelevant distinction. If you're grappling with the difference between yourself and an animal, then the distinction between yourself and a non-Jew becomes irrelevant. And this is a generation that's rapidly descending into the conviction that there is no difference between a human and an animal. <coughs> it's an explicit outcome of the teaching of evolution. <coughs> there's no question that if they're consistent and they take it further, they will either arrive at a conclusion that there's no meaning to human existence, that humans in fact are animals, or if they prefer, they'll give human rights to animals. In fact, it was reported recently, <coughs> a shame to say in which hemisphere, but anyway, it was reported recently that somewhere on earth, <coughs> in some benighted place, they have now made a move to give uh, at, least, at least certain animals, at least certain animals, <coughs> human rights. <coughs> it's a logical and necessary outcome of a teaching that says that you aren't any different than an animal one way or the other. So, we say this, that knowledge of something that transcends the world is obtainable. We don't talk about a blind, about a blind attachment without knowledge. We talk about knowledge. Now, that will leave us with two questions. The first obvious question will be, how do you get the knowledge? How do you get this knowledge? If it's knowable, so what's the direction in which you you move in order to get it. Surely there's nothing more important than that knowledge. 
And secondly, if we can establish that it's, that it's knowable and we can point out the direction and convince ourselves that at least theoretically it is knowable, then we'll be left with a serious question of why do we use the word faith? Why do we not use a term that indicates knowledge? That's the task that we have facing us. So let's work through those two issues as best we can, as much, much time as we have. <laughs> let's see what we, can, what we can lay down. First of all, what is the direction that you have to move in order to achieve a knowledge of Hashem's existence? So there are two Jewish answers to this. There are two possibilities. There are two pathways or two tools, two approaches to this, both of which are formal and kosher aspects of Jewish teaching one of which is much more important and deep, and the other is less important, but nevertheless they're both valid. And those two, and each of them will need a much longer discussion than we have time for this evening. And therefore, with your permission, I'll just point out the directions and possibly one or two details just to indicate the nature of each of the directions, but unfortunately we're not able here, I'm not sure I'm expert enough by any means to follow them through for you. There are people who specialize in this. And you recommended there's very good literature on the subject, in English as well. You recommend, you're, you're urged, in fact, to take it further yourself, because these are fundamentals of, of Judaism and life. But let's at least point out the direction. How do we get knowledge of that which is higher? <coughs> there are two answers. How do we know that Hashem exists? One, because we met Him. We met Him. That's what the Sinai experience means. We met Him personally. <coughs> that raises another question. And that question is, I personally, as an individual in this generation, in this consciousness that I, that I experience now, did not meet him. It was my great, great, great ancestors. Which means that we have to introduce into this equation another factor, and that is, what's the reliability of the transmission of the evidence of the witnesses? Can we rely on what your parents told you, that their parents told them, that their parents told them, etc.? How reliable is that transmission that needs to be examined? And both these components have been very elegantly and formally analyzed and uh, ask any of the people who work here and they'll refer you to, to very, very competent literature on the subject. But just one or two words about the direction. Please do not make a mistake. We're not discussing the subject in an exhaustive fashion. That means we're not trying to prove these things here. My contention to you is that it's knowable and provable. And that's the axiom in Jewish thinking. To actually do that yourself and go any significant distance down that path, something you have to do on your own. But let me at least try to describe the nature of those pathways, even though we're not going <coughs> to explore them seriously this evening. First of all, the fact that the Jewish people met him, you have to know what that means. What does our tradition say? What does the Torah itself say, in fact, about that cosmic meeting between the transcendent, between the infinite world and the finite world? What does the Torah say about that? What is the nature of that meeting? And what, what is the nature of the witnesses who experienced it? the participants to that meeting. Then we'll have to discuss the reliability of the transmission to people who are not there. And there are many things that you, you need to consider here, and it's very important to do. You should know, for example, just to, just to share one or, two, one or two insights here, just one or two very selected ones. You should know that the description of the revelation at Sinai is fundamentally different than any other claimed revelation in history. It's a fundamental thing to understand. We say that the Jewish people stood at Sinai and heard Hashem speak to us. We only heard the first, of the first two of the Ten Commandments. The Gemara says it was too difficult and too painful to hear more. The reason is that when Hashem spoke the first time, the effect was so powerful that all those who stood present died instantaneously when they heard Him speak. They died. 
In fact, the way that the, the Gemara and the Kabbalistic sources put it is that when Hashem spoke the first of the Ten Commandments, the souls, the neshamas of the Jewish people instantaneously flew out towards Him and became attached to His essence. And the bodies were correspondingly blasted back 12 mil, a certain distance outside the camp. That's what happened. There was an explosion of, 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 of the, the, the soul ripping out of the body and the empty body, as it were, being blasted back. Then it says that they were revived to hear the second time that he spoke. In fact, the deeper sources say that the resurrection that took place then was in fact by means of his word. The Torah itself that he spoke was the means. In, in Hebrew it's called the Tal Shel it's the, it's, the, it's the agency of the resurrection itself, which is the deadly is why in the world to come, or in the, in, the, in the preamble, the prelude to the world to come in the Messianic era, the only people who will be resurrected in bodies will be those who had a connection with Torah. That's explicit teaching that not, that not all the Jewish people will be revived, re, 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 um, resurrected. Only those who've had a connection with Torah, because Torah is the agency of the resurrection. It is the source of nurture of the Jewish neshama. There's no other life for a Jewish neshama. And only those who've engaged Torah in a lifetime will then be able to be resurrected by it. Engaging Torah means learning it, or supporting it financially. That's good enough. If you give up your wherewithal, that means your essence of money that was generated by your life and time, which is you, <coughs> so that somebody else could learn, so then you share 100% of the person's learning. Could be other ways as well, but you have to be connected to Torah itself. They were brought forward a second time to, to the Sinai meeting. They heard Hashem speak a second time. They died again. The explosion occurred again. The meaning, of course, is that when Hashem faces a human being, when the human being comes face to face with the source, of, the source and definite definition and essence of reality, the soul does not remain with the human body. The human body is the opposite of the vehicle that's needed for a soul. The human body is the exact opposite of the spiritual world. The Kabbalistic sources say that the human body is a very, by the very nature, by the very fact that it's a finite entity, it's the opposite of the spiritual reality. But specifically a body that's given to its own disintegration, that contains its own excrement within it. That a neshama has to live in a, in a compartment. The neshama has to be put inside physical tissue that is not only physical and temporal and given to, to death, and, and, but that contains its own ink, excrement. If that excrement would be facing you, you wouldn't be allowed to make a bracha. Right? You're not allowed to learn Torah in a place of contamination, inside your body. The neshama doesn't like that. And therefore, when it's faced with an ultimate source and its own source of purity, it explosively leaves the body, and of course the body. That's what it means. And when Hashem began to speak the third time, the Jewish people said, stop. They couldn't take it. They said to Moshe Rabbeinu, they said to Moses, you hear the rest and you tell us. We've heard enough to know that it's a true experience. We've, we've been through enough. It's very painful, very difficult to die. Very difficult experience. And we've seen enough to know, we've in fact seen the validity of the whole Torah, the first of the Ten Commandments encapsulates all the positive commands, the second contains all the negative commands. Therefore, we've seen the essence of all that the Torah is, and from now on, we're very, very cynical and, and, and uh, skeptical people. Right? It took that to convince us, beyond any shadow of doubt, that there'd never be any possibility of saying... Uh, Jewish people wanted uh, direct first-hand experience. But after they had that first-hand experience, they said to Moshe, well, you hear the rest and we'll take it from you. And the rest of the Torah was, was given and repeated through him. <laughs> One of the remarkable features of this experience is that the entire Jewish people stood there. There were millions of people present. A rough calculation gives you about 3 million people, approximately. 3 million people stood there, 
and witnessed this thing and transmitted it to their children throughout the generations. What's remarkable is that the Torah itself says, remarkable thing, the Torah, the Torah r- written it these 3,000 years ago, <coughs> itself says a remarkable thing. It says, has there ever been an experience of a people taken out from another people, etc., as happened to us? And then it adds some remarkable words. Or hanishma kamohu. Remarkable ending to the verse. This, the English translation of that is, loosely, has this ever happened, or has there ever been, has there ever been purported to have happened such a thing? In other words, no one in the history of the world, understand this world, in the history of the world, nobody has ever come along and claimed a revelation that involved more than one person, let alone all of the nations. That's a remarkable thing. There's no other, in the, as far as I'm aware, in the history of the world, there's never been a religion or a spiritual system or a sect or a cult that traces its origin back to a claimed revelation of the divine that claims that there was even one witness present during that revelation. Not talking about miraculous events, talking about a divine revelation. That's a remarkable thing. Christianity, as you well know, the first point of its, as you well know, began formally not with the founder of Christianity, so to speak, it began with Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was a Jew, and he came back from his famous vision on the Damascus Road, and the Jewish people, and he said to them that he had a vision, and Jewish people said, and who witnessed this vision with you? He said, no, it was private. Jewish people weren't interested. And he went off as the Christians say to disciple all nations, because the Jews would have none of it. And the Muslims, their, 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 their system begins with a prophet who had his vision in a tent on his own. And when the Jews asked him who witnessed this revelation with all its details, he said, no, private. And if you trace it down through the ages, all the way down to religions that were started a hundred years ago. <coughs> United States is a religion, for example, that began a hundred odd years ago. It's a very complex belief involving certain... whatever it is. But this individual who had this belief, had this revelation... <coughs> said he had a dream, and in this dream he was told certain things, and today hundreds of thousands of people follow that religion. Did anyone see it with him? No. That's a remarkable thing, that nobody anywhere has ever even claimed a witness. And we know that at least somebody out there is lying. A very simple calculation shows you that if you take all the major religions, you'll see that they all agree that the Torah is true. There's no dissension about that. They all agree that the Torah is true. Islam and Christianity, for example, base themselves on Torah. Absolutely explicitly. Christianity is based explicitly on Torah. It's an addition to the Old, Old Testament. And uh, if you read the Koran, for example, you'll see that the chapters of the Koran are, are, are named for the, for the Jewish heroes. There's Dawud, which is David. There's Musa, which is Moshe, Moses. Yusuf, which is Joseph. It's a... They all agree that what we say is correct, but they call them infidels and they call them dogs. And they've had wars of extermination against each other because of the falsehood. Well, if you put that triangle together, you know, somebody's saying something inaccurate and it's certainly not us. I mean, by their... So if somebody's saying something false, why didn't they, why didn't they produce a witness? If you're going to say something false, can't you pretend, pay, find a witness somewhere? It's a remarkable thing that throughout history there's not been even the claim of a witness to such a revelation. It's an interesting thing. 
There are many other features, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into it now, but it's a story, a history, a description of a revelation that's the beginning of our evidence, if you like, personal evidence for connection and knowledge of Hashem's existence. It goes back to that meeting. Then we have to add the complexity, which again is a long discussion, and again it's been worked out well in English as well. What's the reliability of the transmission of the witnesses who pass the story down to us? Can we rely on it? That every Jewish family sat at the Pesach Seder, and all over the world, the Sephardi world, the Ashkenazi world, throughout the whole dispersion of the Jewish people, which goes back centuries, every family told exactly the same story to their children all over the world, throughout all the generations of history. What's the reliability of the transmission? Well, it's very important to know. Again, it's a full subject, but it's important to know. One of the mistakes many Jews of this generation make is they think that the, that the generations that have handed down this wisdom to us were innumerable. Thousands, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of generations. But a quick calculation will show you that it's a very short chain of transmission. If the Torah was given 3,200 odd years ago, and you call a generation 40 years for argument's sake, plenty of time for parents to give the story to their children, even grandparents can give to their children in that time. 14 to 3,200 goes 18. That's a remarkably small number. That's a remarkably small number. In fact, it's very far from a discussion of folklore that, that sort of vaguely makes its way through the midst of time. The Rambam goes so far as to delineate the names of the leaders of each generation. The Rambam actually takes you through who were the Jewish sages in each generation. There's not one missing. We have original writings. We have detailed historical accounts and original writings of the great Torah sages and leaders of every single generation. And anyone with any personal Torah expertise can tell. It's not that you... That you you, hear, you have on hearsay that the God of Vilna was very great. You have to take that on hearsay. We have his writings. We have, we have voluminous writings, tremendous amount of writings from the God of Vilna. And anybody who has any connection, any contact with him can see the... doesn't need a discussion to, 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 to see its perception and greatness. And it's, it's nothing in comparison to the writings of the Rambam a few centuries before that. And you can examine that consistently yourself. The Rambam wrote a tremendous amount that we have. And that goes back to the Goenim, and that goes back to the Amoraim, and that goes back to the Tanaim. And when you get back to prophecy, we have a direct, explicit record. That's a remarkable thing. At which point did this thing, was this thing falsified? If you say that the witnesses are not reliable, and that they're propagating a falsehood, that somebody foisted this on a... When exactly did that happen? How did that happen? Which generation of Jews? You know, Jews are very... Can you imagine getting one generation of Jews to entirely, without any record of a dissent, to agree to tell the same story over to their children? It's remarkable that they tell the same story over, even given that it's true. <laughs> a remarkable thing. And how intense was the transmission? How intense has been the transmission? How intense has been that the transmission of one generation to the next has been so full and so intense that these Jews who are so skeptical and so cynical and love life so much and are so intelligent in their, in their so creative in their intellect have been ready to give their lives for this thing. That's a remarkable thing. Despite the fact that people don't like to give their lives, despite the fact that Judaism is explicitly against giving your life, people, communities have died throughout the ages from this attachment to this belief. It must have been a tremendously potent, a tremendously potent transmission. How many communities in the last few centuries burned to death en masse rather than pretend to accept anybody else's religion? It's critical to know this. You have to know that, that every generation of Jews that was destroyed Every time there were, there, were, there, were, there were destruction, decrees of destruction against the Jewish people, they weren't wanting decrees of destruction, they were attempts to convert us. 
You have to know this. Do you know that the, what happened 50 years ago in Europe was the first time in Jewish history, basically the first time in Jewish history that Jews were destroyed without being given a choice. You know that? The Christians never did that. Throughout Christian history, the Catholic Church, for example, that killed, according to some accounts, astronomic numbers of Jews. They killed them by torturing them to death. You know why? Not because they were sadistic. Because they wanted to convert them to their religion. They devised institutionalized methods of torture. And they tortured little children in front of their parents, and parents in front of their children, husbands and wives. And they have engravings of it today that they still display. They institutionalized the organized torture, leading to death, which they carried out. Why? Because they wanted to convert Jews to Christianity. If you, if you gay, in, the, in, in the midst of that torture, all you had to do was say, <laughs> all you had to do was kiss the crucifix, and you allowed home as an honored and respected person. And Jews didn't do that. Millions upon millions of little children didn't do that. In Spain, for example, you know, the, it's not the time to go into detail, but the Spanish had a thing called the bastinado. You know what's the bastinado? They would take a Jew and tie him up with his feet over a fire. They cut the soles of his feet and put that in. That's the best That's what they used to do. Why? It's a very powerful in- inducement to accept their religion. And Jews didn't do that. They went through that. Do you know how fiery that transmission of this tradition has to be? Do you know what, do you know what that means? You're talking about Jews here, not people who are blind, you know, suicidal types. And there's lots of aspects of Jewish law that, that rationalize saving your life. And you're allowed to set aside almost the whole Torah in order to save your life. But they didn't do that. This is a tremendous, that's a unique story that sears its way through history with an intensity that's unparalleled. Jews have to know these things, have to study these things. I'm going to leave this subject now because it's much too big to go into in detail. But let's just summarize. We're saying the following thing. We're saying that the reason we know of Hashem's existence is because we as a nation en masse met Him and we have a very, very compelling tradition of the reliability of the transmission of that information to us. But it's a legitimate subject for study. It's a legitimate enterprise to try to falsify it if you can, to try to show, demonstrate that it's false, see how it stands up to critical examination. And that's some of the, those are some of the elements of the direction that the, the greats of Jewish history have, have taken in order to demonstrate this. Let's move to the second aspect of knowledge of Hashem's existence, and that is scientific investigation. Again, this is a full subject, and unfortunately we don't have time to go into all of it. I want to try rather to, deep, to deal with some of the deeper aspects, but... Scientific investigation is a legitimate way of coming to an awareness of Hashem's existence. Without going into detail, I'll just pick out one detail. Without going into a lot of detail, I'll just pick out one aspect, one particular detail to illustrate an angle. What do we mean by scientific examination? How do you look at the world scientifically and rationally and conclude that not anything about the, the transcendent world? just want to point out one interesting feature here, which will lead us into our second component of the discussion. You know that all rational investigations of the, of the world that purport to prove an existence that transcends the world, they all fit into that category of logic, of logical proof, which is known as proof by exclusion. It's a remarkable thing. You know that there are two ways to prove something in mathematics or in logic. 
One is by derivation and one is by exclusion. Those are the two, those are the two categories of proof. Proof by derivation means Proof by derivation means that you take an axiom or a first principle that you derive and establish, and when it's established, you use that to build a more complex thesis or theorem. When that's proven, you build something more complex on that until eventually you arrive at the complexity of the thing that you are trying to prove, and it's based on the found foundation levels that you've built up. That's known as proof by derivation. Proof by exclusion is a totally different process. Proof, proof by exclusion means if I have either A or B, one of which must be true, and I'm unable to prove A, but I can show that B is false, then I've just as rigorously and formally demonstrated that A is true. Are you with me? You agree? All proofs of Hashem's existence through the scientific method, the personal meeting method, is direct derivations, direct experience. But the scientific method is always an examination of the world and asking a question, is this random accident or did somebody design this? That informal thinking is known as the argument from design. It's not a Jewish, it happens to be a Jewish argument originally, but it's certainly the major argument that's presented by all thinkers of all colors and all flavors. The argument from design and all applications, all ramifications of it, are always proofs by exclusion. In general, it runs like this. The world is either an organized output of somebody who is intelligent and organizing, or it's a random accident. Right. Can we derive firsthand that it's the output of a... No. Can we show that it looks very unlikely that it's a random chaotic mess? You can very, very well. You can generate a tremendously high statistical assertion that the thing is not a random accident. Disobeys the law of entropy. It's, it's a highly organized, incredibly detailed and organized. And the more scientific research that's done in all fields, in subatomic physics and in biology, the more that's discovered, the more the levels of organization and integration are found. The question then becomes, did this thing do itself? Or did something else do it? Whether something else did it or not, I cannot demonstrate. But I can get close to showing that it does not look accidental. The more I can show that it's not accidental, the more I exclude that, the more I suggest that something else must exist. That is a proof by exclusion. What's remarkable about proofs by exclusion, and it's fundamental to understand this when people try to prove these things to you scientifically, there's always an uncomfortable feeling about these things being proven, and there's a reason for it. And the reason is this. A proof by exclusion has a remarkable feature. When you listen well. When you prove a thing by derivation, you understand it. Why? Because you derived it from the first principles that you understood and you built up, stage by stage. You end up with a, a, a knowledge of the thing that you proved, an intrinsic knowledge, an understanding of it. When you prove a thing by exclusion, you just as surely know that it must be, but we have no idea what it is at all. Proofs of Hashem's existence are always proofs by exclusion. The alternative seems unlikely. The alternative seems scientifically untenable, very difficult. Does that mean you know who He is and what He is? Not a thing at all. And therefore, we do not claim that scientifically you can come to know what and who Hashem is. That's off limits. But you can show that there must be something. To put it accurately, we say that the scientific pathway can take you to the brink, but what? And show you that there's a brink and there's something beyond, but what that something is, you have no idea. That requires different tools. Now, let's move to the second. Again, all of this is a, needs a lot of detail to be filled in, but we need, before we go to the details, to map out the the, the major chapter headings.
Where are, we, where are we holding now? We're saying this, that our approach to the question of knowledge of that which is higher is yes, it can be known. How can you know it? Personal experience. And there are logical and rational <coughs> approaches to the question as well. Now we, go to our, we move to our second question. If it's knowable, why do we call it faith? Why do we call it faith? What's emunah? What is emunah? If you can know it, talk about the knowledge. And the answer is this. The word emunah does not mean faith at all. It's got nothing to do with blindness or belief. The word emunah means loyalty. It doesn't mean faith, it means faithfulness. The word neeman in Hebrew from the same root means loyal or faithful. Emunah means being faithful or loyal to that which you know. Again, let's, let's understand it carefully. First of all, you see the translation. Vahayu Yodov Emunah. His hands were, they weren't faith or belief. They were loyal, they stayed put. That's what it means. It means they stayed put where they were supposed to be. There was a tenacious attachment to a duty that had to be done. That's what Emunah means. Vehemin Bashem. It doesn't mean he believed in God. It means he was loyal to him through fire and water. That's what it means. Let's explore this in the time that we have available. The human being is a creature who has a remarkable paradoxical element at the center of his being, <coughs> or her being, although men have this problem worse. <laughs> Women are the repository of Emona. That's what the Gemara says. The Gemara says that men are the source of truth. <coughs> Despite uh, appearances. And women are the source of <coughs> loyal attachment. You know how to do that. The female quality. Rational knowledge. In fact, the way this is taught is that the, the Aruch, one of the classical sources, brings a story in the wilderness, in the desert, and he heard a young girl, he heard a girl cry, cries of a young girl. He walked over and he found a young girl that had fallen into a pit, and she could not get out. And she would have died there. The pit, a bore, in Hebrew, a pit is a bore. She was in the bottom of this bore, and he heard her cries. There's a whole mystical discussion. He thought she wasn't human. And I, and I just stick to the bare bones of the story for now. She appealed to him to save her, to lift her out. So he said to her, if I lift you out, will you marry me? If they're here in the details of the story, it's uh, somewhat humiliating, but if they're here in the details of the story, the nature of man and woman. He said to her, if I save you, will you marry me? She said, yes. He lifted her out of the pit, and the Gemara said, there the Aruch says he wanted to marry her on the spot, and she said it wasn't fitting, it's not the way to do things. She said to him, you go back to your town where you come from, you prepare yourself for the wedding, I go back to my town, and I'll prepare myself, and when the time comes, you come and fetch me, we'll get married. So, in order to formalize their engagement, they wanted witnesses, right? like we do in any <coughs> marital ceremony or contractual agreement. They wanted witnesses. The problem is they were in a desert, in a wilderness. There was nothing there. So they decided to take as witnesses the only two things that were present. The pit itself, the boar, and a wild animal that ran past, the khulda. A khulda is like a, uh, like a ferocious wild cat or a small small dangerous animal like that Khuda was running past so they decided to make the witnesses to their bond 
Bor Bechulda. It's known as the story of the Bor Bechulda. And they, they, they sealed their commitment to each other as on those two witnesses. And he went back to his town. She went back to her town. She started preparing for the wedding. And he forgot about it. <laughs> so he married someone else and uh, after some time he had a child with his wife and the child fell into a boar and died sometime later they had a second child and it was eaten by a chulda <coughs> so his wife said to him this is strange she said <laughs> She said, if we had lost two children through any other means, more natural circumstances, I wouldn't have said, but this is... And of course then he remembered, he remembered what these things meant, and he told her about it. She said to him, you go back, you divorce me, and you go back and find that woman. It's a remarkable thing here. It's not only the woman who remained faithful, it's the one who had to teach him as well. Someone said he did that, and he went back to the town. That you remembered that the girl had said she came from. It was a long time later, and when he entered the town, he asked the people if he could see a girl by that name, and they said to him, "You can't see her anymore because she's become insane." So he asked to see her anyway, and he went into the room where she was, and she started caring at him, and she was behaving in insane fashion. And then he said, he said his name, or he mentioned the Boran Chulda, and it turned out that she was not insane. She had been pretending to be insane so that nobody else would marry her. Because she was white. <laughs> anyway, the Arab says they got married, they had children. But that is a. Uh, and that's, of course, why the Jewish women, why it's always Jewish women who have saved the Jewish people, always. At Hanukkah it was Yehudis, at Purim, of course, it was Esther. In Egypt, it was the Jewish women who, who, who lifted us out when the men had given up hope. And the reason is because the final redemption is always a product of emunah. It's always the tenacious attachment to what must be done, even though it doesn't appear logical, even though, even though it seems like the logic has disappeared, or it seems like the difficulty is too great. Loyalty, emunah means the attachment to what must be done, no matter what the difficulty. And the women were always capable of doing that. It's a woman who goes through birth, of course. She's able to maintain this thing, even though it's dangerous and painful. They're able to go through that, and therefore it's women who merit being the, the vehicle or the agents of the final redemption itself. And that requires more discussion as well. But that's, that's what emunah means. Emunah does not mean belief or faith. It's got nothing to do with that. What it means is the dedication, the, the fierce and tenacious attachment to a commitment, no matter how difficult or totally impossible it seems. Or who on earth would wait in a situation like that? Who on earth would wait? But who would wait is a person who knows what loyalty means. You gave your word, there's nothing more important than that. You made a commitment, nothing more important than that. If that goes, there's nothing left. <coughs> Why is this so? Because the, quali- the, the, the criterion for being human, the nature of the human is that you can know something, you can start with a point of knowledge, not belief, knowledge, and then there's a test whether you live up to that knowledge. Again, it's so fundamental to understand. People are, people, humans, 
are creatures who can know something with absolute crystal clarity and act in complete dissonance, discordance with that knowledge. Loyalty, emuna means, you have the knowledge. That's your first obligation. You want to relate to a higher world. You don't bamboozle yourself into accepting it because somebody says so. That's not Judaism. You come and study in a very, very logical and rigorous process of, 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 of coming to understand. But then the question is, are you going to live up to this now? Now that you have the knowledge, the test is, will you live up to it? That's the problem. You know, people, uh, do, you need, do you need proofs of it? Look around you. How many people know that they're doing something that's negative? They know with absolute clarity that this is total destruction, and they march right in and do it. Hey, you see it all around you. Take a simple example of a smoker trying to give up smoking. A person knows what they're doing. I'm talking about a person who does know. Not a person who rationalizes, you know, the person who wakes up, coughs a pool of blood on the floor, <laughs> and says, I must start smoking filters. So <laughs> 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 got a person who knows. How is it possible for a person to know exactly what they're doing, know exactly with clarity, and then act in complete discordance with it? I, I attended a medical school where, where, where my personal teacher of forensic pathology was a professor who smoked. She was a top expert in her field. She taught us post-mortem dissection. She used to go to the post-mortem lab and she used to slice a slice of human lung, black and cavitated, dripping with tar. She put it in your hand and say, Doctor, what's wrong with that lung? <laughs> She died a couple of years later. She died of alcohol problem, but that's another. <laughs> How does a person do that? How does a person do that? <laughs> Once when I was working as a, as a junior intern in a surgical ward, I mean the, 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 the example that brought it home to me most, most graphically, I had a patient. The patient came into our ward. I was a senior student in the ward. The patient came into the ward was a smoker who had Burgers disease. The, the detail is not important, but it happens to be a disease that renders the patient exquisitely sensitive to nicotine in cigarette smoke. And what happens to these people is if they smoke, they get progressive uh, narrowing of their major blood vessels, my major and minor blood, and they can lose digits in parts of their body. The blood vessels close down, and uh, the more they smoke, the more they close down. So this man was a 45-year-old intelligent uh, engineer, as it happens, and he was a smoker. He came into our ward with a threatened leg. His leg was blue, and he was in danger of losing his leg. And it was quite clear to him, he was an intelligent man, he knew a lot about the disease, that if he continued smoking, he'd lose his leg. He carried on smoking, we had to amputate his leg. The next time I saw him was about a year later, he was being wheeled down the hospital corridor in a wheelchair with no legs, and still smoking. Now, what, what, what on earth does that mean? What does that mean? He has an individual who knows exactly what he's doing. He knows all he has to do is throw it away. And be healthy. He can run, play with his children, be normal, survive. He doesn't do that. The intrinsic internal mechanism is a fascinating discussion, and it's not tonight's, not tonight's subject. We have to perhaps discuss that some other time. However, the fact remains. The fact remains that that's what a human being is. You can know something, and have direct evidence of it, and experience it personally. And you can act in discordance with that knowledge. Emunah means, first you get the knowledge, and then there's the work and the test. Do you have what it takes? Do you have the courage and the, and the discipline and the tenacity, the staying power to live up to that knowledge? That's what faith is. 
let's try to, let's try to just spend a few minutes exploring this. The fundamental of Jewish knowledge. Let's see if we can illustrate this. Simple illustration. You know, it says by Abraham, 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 it says there that one of his tests was that Hashem told him to leave his country and his birthplace and go to a strange land. Do you remember? The land of Israel. There, a remarkable thing, the way the Chumash describes it is like this. Hashem said to him, leave your house, your home, your birthplace, your father's land, and go go to the land which I shall show you. All the commentaries point out, why did Hashem tell him, the land that I will show you, why didn't he tell him which land? He's telling him to go from here to there. You leave here, you tell him the destination. Why did he say the land which I shall show you? And the deep commentaries <coughs> point out <coughs> that the nature of a Jewish ordeal <coughs> is that it starts with knowledge. We don't start with bamboozled, cultish, groupie mentality. We don't do that. We start with a rigorous attempt to understand on the basis of the best evidence. But then the question is, where you're going to is not known. That means that, are you prepared to go on this journey, despite the fact that you know that you have to undertake the journey? You know this is true. But what you don't know, and this is where we get to the discussion that we said, <laughs> that there's an element of truth in the blindness. Can you see where it lies? The path of faith is that the fact that the journey has to be undertaken, that has to be knowledge. To leap, is a leap off a cliff. Or to go on some dangerous journey because you've got no evidence, because you just think it will be nice. That's not true. But when you know that it's right and you have to do it, then the question is, do you have the courage to leap off a cliff? Do you have the courage to go to a place that you don't know what it will be? That's where the unknown element is. And that's why there's a test, and that's why there's an ordeal. <laughs> the land which I shall show you. No, you, don't, you cannot know it until you get there. The nature of an ordeal is, Hashem says to you, <laughs> I want you to jump off the edge of a cliff. Again, imagine, let's make it graphic. Imagine, imagine you walk out of here this evening. And as you walk pensively, no, my, I do my best here in these sessions to give you something to think about. So you're walking down the road and you're having, you have something else to think about. So you're thinking, and as you lost deep in religious thought, a big hand taps you on the shoulder. A big hand. And you turn around and you're facing the creator of the world. If it happens to you, come and see me privately because... Uh, <laughs> We don't live in a generation of prophecy anymore. But assuming that you lived in those generations, you turn around, you're facing Hashem, facing the creator of the world. He says to you, look, I'd like you to do me a favor. <laughs> you say anything you say. You're not hallucinating. You're talking about the most absolutely clear <coughs> perception imaginable. He says, I'd like you to take a bus to uh, Wales. You'll find there a mountain. Huh? Climb up the mountain, go to the edge, top, you'll see a, you'll see a cliff, with a 5,000 foot drop, jagged rocks at the bottom. <laughs> I just want you to jump. <laughs> but I'll catch you. <coughs> no question. No question about this. This experience you just had is more real than any other aspect of reality. This is the definition of the perception of reality. You don't have any doubts about it. You know this with a clarity greater than you know anything else, including your own existence. So you take the bus, don't you? You go down to Wales, you climb the thing, and you get to the edge of the cliff, and you go like this. No? Silence. You see, you know you have to do it. I don't have any doubts about it. Do you have what it takes to do it, though? 
When Avraham Avinu took the knife in his hand and Hashem said, kill your son, did he know that he had to do it? <laughs> of course he knew. Hashem personally told him. He didn't, he didn't cook up the idea. He didn't wake up one morning and say, it would be a nice idea. To study throat. He didn't say that. He was given an instruction by the source of reality. There's no doubt in his mind. Does that mean it's not a test? The test is not... <coughs> the test is, do you have emunah? Do you have the quality of living up to that which you know? Not do you know it. Your obligation is to know it. <laughs> but now that you know it, <coughs> can you live up to it? He took a knife in his hand. And what you have to do is impossible. The fact that you have to do it and that you know that with clarity is not even up for question. He was a prophet. He knew that he does it make it easy to do? It was an impossible action. Are you prepared to go through the impossible for me? That's the nature of the Jewish people. You know what the Gemara says? The Gemara says in, in, uh, Gemara says in, in Nazir that the fact that he had it, that killing his son was an impossible act. You know, we think in our lowly understanding, we think that it was an impossible act, a difficult act, because emotionally for the father to kill his son right, is very difficult emotionally. After all, he waited a hundred years for this boy and he went around teaching that human sacrifice is wrong, he invested so much, it was the future of the Jewish people, etc., etc. How could he bring himself to cut, the, to slit the throat of this, of this young man? But his emotions were under complete control. That wasn't the problem. That wasn't the problem. The Gemara explains over there that the reason it was a test is because Hashem asked him to do that which was impossible. That he knew he had to do it was absolutely clear, but the action itself was absolutely impossible. <laughs> Why is it impossible? Because the Moral the mor- makes clear, the verse that it applies to the situation is a verse in Tehillim that says, Asheloi chafasti, velo alta al-libi, velo alta al-libi. That means, Hashem himself is speaking and he's saying that this action of Abraham, Avram Avinu killing his son, is something that I never wanted. That never occurred to me and I never wanted. Lo alta al-libi means never occurred to me. That means, I'm instructing him to kill his child, but it never for a moment occurred to me that I really want him to do it. Meaning that it's absolutely wrong and impossible. And of course we know that's true, because when it came to the moment, Hashem said, don't. <coughs> so as he walked towards that experience, just picture the scene, he's walking with his son, he has a knife, <coughs> he, <has> an, <coughs> he pulls him his back, he puts him on it, and he says to himself, that the Mephoshim say that as the beloved knows the heart of the beloved, he knew that Hashem did not want this sacrifice. He knew that he didn't want it. So he takes a knife in his hand, and Hashem says to him, kill him. And he holds the knife in his hand and he says to himself, but, but Hashem, you don't want this. This is absolutely impossible. Impossible meaning not that I find it difficult emotionally, but that you do not want this. And Hashem says, you're absolutely right, I don't want it. Now kill him anyway. That's an impossible action. That's an impossible action. It, 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 there's a paralysis of any possible logic. There's a paralysis of all human faculty. All that's left is the tenacity to go through it because he said so. You know what the result was of that thing? What was the result? Yitzchak got up. Hashem said, don't kill him. Yitzchak got up and he walked off and got married. He went off to get married. That's the beginning of the Jewish people. And what was left in his place was a pile of ash. The Emperor says that his ashes, the ashes of his having been sacrificed remained on the altar. His ash. Which means that Avram Avinu did an impossible action and the result was an impossible result. Yitzchak got up and moved off to be a human being who's alive in the world as a human being. And yet his ashes are there, he's been burnt. He lives in this world and the next world at the same time. In fact, the Ari, the Arisa, a great Kabbalistic master, the Arisa, says that the word Yitzchak spells Ketzchai. It means living the next world in this world. Ketzchai means the next world in this. And that's what a Jew is. 
We begin where the impossible ends. We go through things for him that are impossible. We don't do it because we're cultish groupies. We do it because we have a very reliable tradition that is backed up by the most solid evidence that's ever been in the history of the world. That's why we do it. Not because we cook it up and think it's nice. Not an emotional experience. But does that make it easy? When they've done to us what they've done to us throughout the centuries, they make it easy? That's the test. That's what Imuna means. Imuna doesn't mean. And intellectually, in the depth of the Neshama, this journey means going to a place that is blind and unknown. That's what it means. That you have to go is clear. But what it is, is blind. Every moment of life has to be a dissolving of what you were before. And a moving into an entirely new zone. You know why Hashem said to him, go to the land which I shall show you? You know why I didn't tell him where? Because when you move, when you move ahead in your own neshama, when you move in your own growth, when you move spiritually, when you elevate yourself, if you're working on yourself, then you never can see the place you're going to from where you are now. Anytime you leap off that cliff, in order to get to the other side, you cannot see what the other side is. You can't see who you will become while you're yet at, less, at a less mature stage. You can't see it now. If you saw what you were going to be from here, it would be distorted. If you're trapped inside a prison, you're trapped inside a glass prison, and they're shining white light on you so you should see the white light. Inside the prison, you can't see the white light. It keeps breaking up. And the more intense they shine the light, the more it's happening. You don't see it. There's no way you'll ever perceive it until you break the prison. Only when you shatter where you are now can you see the new reality. Any time a new reality is projected onto you while you're at your less mature stage, it becomes shrunken and distorted to your less mature stage. Hashem couldn't tell him where he was going. He couldn't tell him where that journey led. If he would have heard it while he was yet a man who had not undertaken the journey, he would have heard it in a shrunken and distorted and false projection. The only way you can get there is you break and destroy who you are now. That's what faith means. That's the unknown. When you leap off the cliff to get to the other side, you can't put your one foot across while the other one's there. That's not an act of faith. The fact that you have to leap with his assurance is absolutely clear. We don't take on ridiculous steps in Judaism. But you can't see the other side. That's the problem. You can't see where it will lead. You want to take on this step in your own personal life? Who knows what it means for your friendships, your family? Who knows what's going to happen? <coughs> well, the question is, are you intellectually honest? Do you know you have to do it? If you know you have to do it, what's the problem? Ah, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be so difficult you can't begin to picture what it will look like and what it will feel like. That's the nature of an ordeal. That's what it means. That's what it means. You go leaping off because you're not clear about it yet? That's ridiculous. You go take a leap because you... That's ridiculous, not you. But when intellectually you arrive at a stage that this has to be true, that this is a far better option than anything else is, this particular thing or that, whatever aspect of your development it is, do you know what it will lead to? Do you know what you will be when you get there? How can you know? How can you know until you've made that commitment? God, no. But the tenacity and the loyalty and the fierce dedication to that which you know to be true, even though you can't know what the result will be, that will be entirely blind. That's what Emona is. That's the growth of... That's what, that's what Torah is. That's what Yerush is. And if you speak to a secular thinker, you know what they'll tell you? They'll say, you religious people, you blind sheep, that's what you are. You have no ordeals. Yeah, you have no... You have no, you know, work on yourself. All you do is you follow by road. That's all you do. Your religion's a crutch. Have you ever heard this? Your religion's a crutch. You have no thinking to do. There's no genuine exploring of the soul and of its possibilities. All you do is you follow the ritual. It's all mapped out for you. It's all easy. Now me... I'm a secular individual. For me, it's all heroic. 
For me, every step is a step into the unknown. I go wherever the truth leads me. I have no limitations at all. You're totally limited. All you do is you follow the map, that's all. There's no heroism, there's no growth, there's no giving, there's no... But me, I'm secular, right? I've got no rules. Therefore, I go wherever the truth leads me. Do you know how false that argument is? Do you know what's really being said? Can you see that it's exactly the opposite? You know what that person means? I go wherever the truth leads me. Uh, provided, of course, uh, yeah, I have defined the borders of what that means. I mean, I said I'm secular, right? I'm not going to admit anything that's outside what I can understand. But that's ridiculous. Uh, we know that, don't we? Anything that transcends the finite, that we've defined out of existence, haven't we? Which means reality is from here to here, right? The world that I can experience. I go anywhere there. That's what he means. That means I go where the truth leads, provided it's within the borders and boundaries of that which I've defined as being possible. That's heroic. That's leading where the truth leads with no limitations. That's the safest houses. That's not... <coughs> the religious pathway, path, uh, the spiritual path is a path that genuinely goes where the truth leads, even to the destruction of what it is that you are. If it's right and it has to be, then you go there. There, there are really no preconceived boundaries. You have no idea what the boundaries are. There's no idea that there are any boundaries. Who knows what it will look like when you get Who knows what boundaries will have to be broken in order to get to the next step? Who knows what cliffs will have to be left off? And that's what working on oneself means. And therefore, the work of Emuna, the correct translation, has nothing to do with belief or blindness. In that sense, the beginning of the pathway is a pathway of knowledge. The formal approach to it in Jewish teaching, every Jew owes it. You owe it to yourself, of course, to go through that, that, that investigation with the rigorous intellectual honesty. But if you're already aware that you... If you're really aware that the human, you've got even some doubt, let's say, you've got some doubt that you, that's occurred to you somewhere along the line that you may be more than an evolutionary accident. And now that you've established that, it occurs to you that it's even possible that you may, may be Jewish. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It certainly deserves at least investigation of what that means. Once you get an, once you enter an investigation of the, you'll be afraid of the investigation. The fact that it may lead to destruction of a previous reality and essence. That's where it is. And every component that slots itself in as being rational, as being compelling rationally, in terms of your own inner knowledge, then the challenge will be, will you live up to this? <coughs> that's not easy. And therefore, the word emuna is the process that leads on from what the truth is. It's not a replacement for the truth. That's a completely childish and immature concept. It's a process of investigating what the truth is and to the extent that you gain that knowledge, to be loyal to that knowledge.